The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I selected for the opening hymn this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I've had this uh, song on my mind a good bit over the last month, and originally my intention was to almost go through this song as an exposition today, but I've had another thought that was put (coughs) heavily on my mind uh, last night. Uh, If you don't mind turning to that in our uh, old school centennial edition, I'm actually looking at it from the Primitive Baptist hymnal because The Primitive Baptist hymnal has a fourth verse, come desire of nations come, fixing us thy humble home. And that desire of nations, which is a quote from the book of Haggai, is one of the lines that's been consistently stuck in my head the last month. And uh, what I want to highlight about this hymn before we move on to hopefully considering uh, the shepherds this morning Lord willing, is the the depth of the scripture that is in this hymn. And this was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley in the 1700s, if you're looking at the hymnal, you have his dates there. And the alternate, which I, I guess is possibly the fourth verse, uh, it is the fourth verse is in the Primitive Baptist hymnal but it's left out of the old school centennial. So the one you're looking at uh, does not have this this one in it. And I presume that that was probably authored by George Whitfield. But Charles Wesley penned this, and I was looking up some info on him this week, and it said that he penned possibly 6,500 hymns. Very, very well known. Many that have made our way, uh, made its way to the Primitive Baptist Hymnal. If you know the Wesleys, they're a very instrumental his brother John is very well known, John Wesley, being instrumental in the establishment of the Methodist Church, Methodism. Uh, but good godly men, and you can just tell in a time period where they weren't as distracted as we are with all the technology that we have, and we have 5% of our attention uh, that goes in a thousand different directions, and they had time to really meditate and study on God's Word. You can just see the depth of the the lyrics of this poetry that they put to, to hymns, and that's, that's how hymns should be. Uh, would, uh, it's good to uh, have good melodies and good music, and, uh, but that's a new thing. I hope you know that as well, by the way. Uh, it's only in the last 50 years that the notes that we use has been put to paper, and uh, what's important is the poetry and the words because uh, we're singing praise to God uh, through those words. And what we really should be doing is singing scripture. And that, that's what is so great about this hymn and quite a few other hymns is that almost every line that was penned in this hymn is a reference to some scripture about Jesus Christ. And that's how hymns in public worship should be, right? They should be singing Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly, 
in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I appreciate just within the last probably year or so, Elder Joe Holder from California released a psalter of the psalms that has the psalms put to a metric, to a common meter and suggested hymns and such. But that's something other than just a handful of songs that have been um, adapted that we have in our hymnals as Thirst the Heart for Water Brooks or The Lord is My Shepherd. There's only a handful of the psalms that we have in our hymnal. But there's nothing better than singing God's word, right? Especially the psalms that were written uh, as a song to be sung. And we've kind of let that slip a little bit in the Primitive Baptist Church, but it's appropriate to sing the psalms, right? And I appreciate Brother Joe Holder for making that commitment to provide something where we can do that. And hymns, we're used to hymns, right? And then spiritual songs. I appreciate Sister Bethany's family and their commitment and family devotions and other things to the scripture songs. And that's a great way to learn scripture. Yeah, If you don't know those, uh, I would encourage you to learn them. Uh, just simple things like seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Uh, this is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad. In it. And all those are are just singing the word of God. And when you sing those, there's just something about the way the Lord wired our brain <clears throat> that when you sing something, it's easier to be remembered than just memorizing it flat, right? Uh, it's easier to put something to a tune and things, things stick better like that. So one of the ways that we learn God's word is through psalms by singing the 150 psalms that we have in the book of the psalms, hymns, and then spiritual songs. And hymns can be a tremendous aid to us in learning God's word because the word of God should dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. I mean, you can learn if a hymn is written appropriately. You can learn the word of God through a hymn right? And I just want to highlight, I intended to spend more time on this, but I hope the Lord will bless our consideration of focusing on the shepherds. But I want to highlight here uh, this hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sing. And all of just the, almost every stanza is, a, is some phrase from the Word of God. Hark the Herald Angel Sing. Glory to the newborn king. That's directly from Luke chapter 2 that we're going to go to in just a minute. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. That's why Jesus came into this world, right? To reconcile his people uh, that were at enmity with God because of the inherited sin of Adam. Joyful all you nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the, angel, <clears throat> hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ, verse 2, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. That little bitty babe was the everlasting Lord. It says in Isaiah, he's the everlasting father. He's the son of God, but yet he's one with the father in the perfect unity of the Trinity. He's 
the Son of God, but yet at the same time, He's the everlasting Father. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. That's from Galatians chapter 4. Behold, in the fullness of time, God, Christ came, uh, made of a woman, made under the law. Okay? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You know, it said that uh, in the Old Testament that no man could see God and live, right? I mean, God had to, had to conceal himself when Moses desired to see his glory. He could only see his hinder parts, and even seeing his hinder parts lit up his face, right? So no man can see God and live, so how can God become a man and interact with people? He put a veil on, if you will, right? Veiled in flesh, but at the same time, the Godhead seat. This is in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter two and verse nine. In that little bitty baby, dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we just, or, or I, better for me to speak in the first person. I don't want to lump any of y'all in with me. I take the incarnation for granted so much. And I think about that a lot during this time of year. But this phrase, hail the incarnate deity. I mean, this is God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's not just a nice little name that they gave Jesus. That is God with us. That little bitty baby was the incarnate deity. He was God. Pleased his man. It pleased him to take upon himself, the humble himself, to take upon himself the form of a man, pleases man uh, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's a title that was given to Jesus in the Old Testament that was again reiterated in the New Testament to Mary and Joseph that would be one of his, his names. And Emmanuel means God with us. Verse 3, Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. That's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Peace came to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Hail the son of righteousness. That's Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, that the son of righteousness would come with healing in his wings. That's the, the next phrase. Hail the son of righteousness, life and light to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Mild he lays his glory by. He humbled himself and became obedient unto God humbled himself and laid down the fullness of his glory for a, for a period of time so that he could, he could save his people from their sins. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Now obviously we know children of God have been born again ever since the first child of God, right? Obviously, Jesus didn't come into this world to born people again and for that to begin. But he was the, the visible manifestation of the life and the light of God 
Born that man may no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. He came to be born for the purpose of dying to be resurrected, that we would be resurrected, right? And then verse 4 is the, the, forward, the verse that's been in my mind uh, a lot. And again, if I have a chance to visit with Bill Bryce Lowrance, I don't know why he left the fourth verse out. It's one of my favorite ones in the whole hymn. But come desire of nations come. Come desire of nations come. That's quoted from Haggai chapter 2 and in verse 7. The desire of nations shall come and I will fill this house. Now that happened in the physical manifestation of the physical temple in Jerusalem that the Son of God came to the temple and filled it with his glory. But we are the temple of God and he comes to reside in us as well to fill us with his glory, right? In the New Testament manifestation. So Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7, desire of nations. God showed, now obviously God had Gentiles Gentile children of God all throughout the Old Testament. But God showed special attention and special blessings upon a specific group of people in the Old Testament. But this this Messiah, this Emmanuel, this Christ that was coming would be the desire of all nations, right? Because God has a people out of every nation, kindred, people in tongue. It's not just special blessings to the lineage of Abraham and the Jews anymore, right? It's truly joy to the world, the world. Obviously not the, all the world without exception because Christ didn't bring joy to everybody. I mean, you don't, you don't have to look any farther than uh, Herod and his desire to murder babies to, to extinguish the king. Do you think he brought joy to the whole world that showed up? Well, no, of course not. But he brought jo- joy to all the world without distinction because these blessings used to only be imparted to the the nation of the Jews, right? But now he is the desire of of all nations. And he kind of restricted his ministry for a little bit when he was here on earth, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he removed those limitations when he went back up to heaven. He said, you go, go preach the gospel to every creature, right? You go to all nations. Come desire of nations, come. <clears throat> Fix in us thy humble home. Isn't it amazing that Christ resides inside of the heart of every child of God, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, he he really had to condescend himself uh, to take on the likeness of sinful men to die, but how much more humiliating is it for him to come down and reside in our sinful bodies, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a humiliation to the Son of God for him to reside inside of my sinful body. But he decided to humble himself and fix in me, fix in you, his humble home. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? When the, uh, the serpent had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and at that moment, man was fallen into sin in just condemnation of a holy God, but even in the in the that black backdrop, God gives us the light of the gospel, even there in Genesis chapter 3, that serpent, you're going to run on your belly the rest of your days, and I'm going to put enmity between the woman's seed and your seed, and he will bruise your head, or you, you will 
bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And there's also much significance in it's the woman's conquering seed, right? It was always the son of the father, the son of the male, but he said, no, it's gonna be the seed of the woman. Why is it the seed of a woman? Because Jesus was born of a virgin, right? He's born of a virgin. It's the woman's conquering seed and bruising us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness, now efface. Efface means to erase a mark from a surface. Our, our, our image has been marred by Adam, right? We were created in the image of God. Adam sinned, but then when he brought forth children, it highlights this in Genesis chapter four, I believe, that Adam brought forth a child in his image and in his likeness. So now Adam sinned, Adam sinned, and he brings forth a son in his image. And unfortunately, as natural men, every single child of God has the likeness of Adam stamped on us. But he said, I'm going to take the likeness of Adam away, right? I'm going to efface, I'm going to remove, I'm going to erase the stamp of Adam on you, and I am going to instead stamp my image in his. I created you in my image, Adam, and all of humanity. I created you in my image, and you marred it. Now you're going to be born the second time, and I'm going to put my image on your soul, and it's going to remove the likeness of Adam's image. I, I love this poetry. Isn't this beautiful? Adam's likeness, now he face, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about the first Adam and then the last Adam. The second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The depth of those lyrics and the, just you can see how, how deeply Charles Wesley was steeped in the Word of God, and it came out in his poetry and in his hymn writing. And that's how all of our hymns should be, that they should be so steeped in the Word of God that we are singing Scripture back to God. Isn't God pleased to hear His people singing His Word back to Him, right? And that's exactly how <clears throat> our hymns should be. Now, I'd like to go to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, the very common account of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, Luke chapter 2, and I want to look at the shepherd's gospel, the shepherd's gospel, Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And really what he was doing there was not necessarily that you had to come to your city to be taxed. It was a census to get uh, the right classifications of, of every citizen so that you could be taxed in the future. So it was really a census. And that's why they had to go to register in their hometown uh, that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every man to his own city, or went to be 
registered for the census. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Remember back in Micah chapter 5 and in verse 2 that the prophecy was that Bethlehem, <clears throat> Bethlehem Ephratah would be famous in Jerusalem. There's also a prophecy back in Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, when she marries, marries Boaz. Where is it that uh, they live? They live in, in Bethlehem. And he says, Let, may your name be famous in Israel. Well, she ended up being famous, right? Because Ruth was either the great or the great-great-grandmother of David. And then Christ came through the lineage of David. Bethlehem Ephratah. <clears throat> to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and washed him, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, <clears throat> It's become common for us to celebrate Christmas on the 25th day of December, and that is Christian tradition, and I think it's beneficial for us to have a time that we think about it, because otherwise we get distracted and we don't meditate on the things that we need to. Every single Sunday is a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but many times we don't think about it till Easter, right? It's just the way we are. We get busy and and we don't think about the power and the reality of the resurrection until there's a day on the calendar that makes us think about it. And I think that's beneficial for <clears throat> the birth of Jesus Christ as well because he couldn't have died for our sins unless he was born, right? Uh, as a man to come into this world to die for our sins. And I think if you look at multiple different prophecies and and the life of Jesus, I think that you can make a very good case that there's a good chance that he was probably born in the seventh month of September to October. A lot of reasons for that. He had roughly a three and a half year public ministry that ties to the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy that in the midst of the seventh week, Messiah would be cut off. So you have a seven year period and obviously half of seven years is three and a half years. Now, if you map that out, that Jesus was crucified on Passover, crucified on the first Jewish month that coincided with our uh, Roman calendar of March to April, that would mean that it's possible that he could have been born in the seventh Jewish month, which coincides to September or October. And part of the significance of that is because what happens in the seventh Jewish month is, first of all, they have the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Jesus Christ, it says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word made flesh literally means to tabernacle with us. Wouldn't it make a lot of sense for Jesus Christ to be born as he came to tabernacle with us? Wouldn't it make a lot of sense for him to be born during the same time period as the Feast of Tabernacles? Also in the seventh Jewish, Jewish month was when you had the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, when they would have the slaying of the lamb and the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the mercy seat for 
that annual remission or remittance or remembrance of sin, it would make a lot of sense in that seventh month for Jesus Christ to show up in the day of the same month that had the Day of Atonement, right? But one of the other reasons why I think a December birth would be a, a large stretch is because of the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. So the winter months out in Judea are pretty harsh. I mean, we've had a lot of bitter cold this week, right? Well, no one can stay outside with their flocks during that kind of a bitter cold, right? So if the shepherds are out staying with the flocks at night, then it's not the bitter cold months of December. But they could be staying out there when some of the evenings are a little bit more mild, maybe September, October, right? Another aspect of this is it says, <clears throat> there was no room for them in the inn, in the inn. And that word, in many other places, that Greek word is translated as guest chamber. There's a different word, such as the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, that he finds that man that's beaten up and takes him to the inn. Well, that word translates as a hotel. It's a hotel. But this word in primarily in other places is translated as a guest chamber, all right? So you have a lot of people coming into town, a lot of people coming into town for the census, and this kind of gives you a vibe of the kind of uh, scandalous misinterpretations that even Mary and Joseph's family thought of them. Because uh, I don't believe that the right idea of this is the typical nativity scene, right? That they knock on the the uh, door of the first century Holiday Inn Express and they say, well, we're booked up tonight. Well, no, they came to their family. They came to their family members and said, can we stay in your guest chamber? And they showed up. Hadn't seen, you know, they didn't have text messages and phone calls back then. They show up and Mary's pregnant. Now, wait a minute. You ain't married yet. You ain't married. I can't have you stay in my house. <laughs> Have this child of fornication stay in, in my house. You're not even married yet. Most likely, their family shunned them. Okay? And then they settled for uh, most likely what was the, the first level uh, of a house. They would have a trough and, a, and an area to bring the animals in when it did get that cold. And I think that's another reason why you would say that the temperature were probably a little bit more mild in those fall months instead of the br brutal winter months because obviously they were not laying a newborn baby in a manger that had active animal food in it right it was obviously clean during this time period because the animals were out in the field okay <clears throat> I say all that to say that these shepherds, during this time of year, were keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's not during the time of year where they would have to go in to protect themselves. Obviously, you know, we've had below 10 degree temperatures this last week. Obviously, you can't stay out with your flock when it gets that cold, right? You have to take care of them in a different way. But, again, in some of those milder uh, September, October, seventh month time periods possibly, the shepherds 
are staying out with their flocks. Now, how interesting is it? <clears throat> it shouldn't be surprising uh, the way that the Lord intermingles all of his teaching of Scripture, right? That this message, other than, of course, you have Elizabeth. You have Elizabeth who uh, recognizes Mary after she's conceived when Jesus is probably just a couple weeks old. She, By the Spirit, she recognizes that the mother of my Lord has arrived. That's in Luke chapter 1. But other than Mary and Joseph, possibly Elizabeth, you kind of get the impression that maybe Mary and Joseph's family didn't really believe this conceived of a virgin story to start with. Who is the very first people outside of the parents of Jesus that receive a message of the good news of the birth that the Lord, the Savior of this world, has been born in Bethlehem? Who are the people that receive the message? It's these lowly shepherds. Isn't that interesting? The lowly shepherds. Who's, first of all, who's the one who delivers the message to them? It's an angel. It's an angel. And an angel is simply a messenger. Now, the angels in Scripture uh, that are these spiritual beings, these very unique beings that are sent for multiple different tasks by the Lord, and one of their tasks is to deliver uh, messages and to deliver good news. But at its core, though, an angel is a messenger, someone who comes from God with a message. And that's why in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, in introducing those uh, seven letters to the church at Asia, Jesus writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the messenger. He's primarily talking to the pastor there. It's commonly understood that the word angel there in those... Uh, now, it's good to think about the fact uh, that there, there's a very good possibility that maybe individual churches have our own angel assigned to us. That's, that's an, an encouraging thought to think about, right? Uh, you have references that the, the children, these young children, these babes in Christ, Jesus makes reference that their angels do always behold the face of God. It kind of gives you an indication there that maybe these young babes in Christ and maybe even people that are young in age have personally assigned angels. I don't know if that's the case, but it, it's God's angels in camp round about them that fear him, right? And God's Children are the ones that fear him. It's a certainly an encouraging thought to think that we could maybe have our own personal angels and maybe our churches have our own personal angels. That's an encouraging thought to think about that the Lord would have personally assigned angels to protect us. But I don't necessarily think there in Revelation 2 and 3 that he's talking about the personal protective angel of that church. He's talking to the pastor, okay? He's talking to the pastor. And who is it that delivers... One of the most uh, succinct statements of the gospel in all of Scripture, who is it that delivers one of these first messages of the gospel? Well, it's an angel, right? By the way, it was also an angel that gives us one of the other most succinct messages of the gospel in Matthew chapter 1 when Joseph was deciding, if I'm, he found out that 
that this woman I'm betrothed to is now great with child, and am I gonna put her away privately? I don't necessarily wanna accuse her of fornication and have her stoned and killed, but this is, this is a bad situation. I think I may just need to back away from this. I think I may just need to go my separate way and, and, and divorce her. And that's when the angel comes, this is in Matthew chapter one, right? And, and appears to him, and that's when the angel gives another one of those one-line statements of the gospel that she shall bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sin. Who is it that delivered that message? An angel, right? An angel. That's who the gospel's entrusted to. And we know that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. But then he is called ministers, messengers, to proclaim the good news of his gospel that are under shepherds to the chief shepherd, right? So who is it that has been entrusted with the good news of this gospel? It's shepherds. It's shepherds that care about the sheep. It's shepherds that care about the flock. And I tell you, it's just amazing to me how the Lord uh, in his providence sees to, to choose these, and these are just the ones we know about, okay? Uh, I don't necessarily think there were more people uh, at the birth of Jesus, but later on in this chapter, you have Simeon highlighted, you have Anna highlighted. There were probably more people that had similar interactions, but these are the ones that Scripture and the Holy Spirit saw fit to highlight, Okay, but how amazing is it that these are just regular shepherds? I mean, this is, they don't, the wise men, the wise men saw a star and they made a months long commitment to follow this star to see somebody. But these shepherds, it was a regular night. I want you to just think about this, okay? A regular night and you're on, you're on graveyard shift, right? I mean, there's not a lot of exciting things that happen on the graveyard shift being a shepherd, right? You just want to make sure all the sheep are alive tomorrow morning. Uh, make sure no wolves get them. So a regular night, a regular night. And then in the middle of all that, these shepherds that uh, God chose in his providence to put them in the right place at the right time for them to be the people to see these angels and to be entrusted with this message. I mean, isn't that amazing that God's providence sees fit to just choose people out here and there, you know? Uh, I think about Ruth when she made her way to the field of Boaz. Her hap was to light on the field of Boaz. You know, the, these shepherds just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But God chose these shepherds to be the very first people to receive the message of the gospel. And they used what they were entrusted with in the proper way, and they sounded the trumpet. They told a lot of people about this, and we're going to get there. But God chose them. God chose in his sovereignty to entrust these rank-and-file, lowly shepherds with the gospel. And the, I can just only imagine the type of miraculous vision that this was when first you have the one angel, okay? Verse nine, the angel of the Lord, verse nine, came unto them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and as they ought have been, they were sore afraid. They were afraid. 
But what's the very first message of the gospel? The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The first of all, the gospel begins with fear not. Fear not. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and she received the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. It, it just irks me to no end that there are people who claim to be preachers that claim to preach the gospel and all they do is fear monger and they, they bring the exact opposite of good news. It's not comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It's scare ye, scare ye, my people, that if you don't do such and such and, and you have a car wreck tonight, God's going to quit loving you and he's going to cast you in hell. Well, let me tell you, there is no good news of great joy to all people in that message, right? <laughs> no, the first requirement of the gospel is that it calms the fearful, troubled soul of the child of God. That's the first requirement of the gospel. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. And boy, when you hear these things, they should bring you great joy. I mean, we're thankful to have joy, but this should bring you great joy. And it's not just to you. It's not just to you shepherds. It's not just to the Jews. It shall be to all people because he's the desire of nations now, right? For unto you, I like that phrase too, for unto you. I, I mean, I'm thankful that the testimony of Jesus' birth is joy to the world. I mean, I'm thankful that, that it blesses a lot of people. But obviously these shepherds were children of God. And he said, this is good tidings of great joy because this Savior was born unto you, personally, unto you, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful, simplistic message of the gospel that there's a Savior that's coming in. Do you feel to be a sinner? Well, Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He came as a Savior. His name means Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, how are these shepherds going to find out who this, uh, who this child is? Okay, well, there, there was probably quite a few different babies born in the general region of Bethlehem during this time period. Maybe even this night. He said, how are you going to find this child that is born in the city of David, and this is the child that is God? This is the child that is God manifest in the flesh. This shall be a sign unto you, and you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Well, you know, most babies that were born that night are not going to be laying in a feed trough, right? So if you go and you find a baby that's laying in a feed trough, that's a pretty good identifier that because he's going to be the only one, right? <laughs> he's going to be the only one that's laying in a feed trough. And that's going to be the, the Son of God. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude. I can only imagine what this looked like, right? A multitude of the heavenly host 
praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. The Prince of Peace has now came to earth to bring us and reconcile us back to peace with God. Peace has now arrived on earth, right? Because the Prince of Peace has arrived, and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They understood that the Lord had appeared to them, and the Lord was gracious to choose them to allow us to see this. And they then, in verse 16, they made haste. I mean, um, you start out being terrified of these, uh, this multitude of angels, but then the message of the angel is, Fear not. Fear not. And then once they get over the fear and they realize what happened, now that great joy kicks in and we got to go find this baby, right? We, we, have to, we have to go find our Lord. We have to go find God manifest in the flesh that's laying in a manger. They came with haste. They were running to find this baby. And they found Mary and Joseph and a babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered. They marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, this vision, this message that was given them by the angel, it says there's going to be good tidings of great joy that are going to be to all people. This, this has a broad audience that it's applicable to. But who was entrusted with this good news message that is to be distributed? Who was entrusted with it? The shepherds. The shepherds. The, the ministry, if you will. And notice what they did with what they've been given. They, uh, they did not just go home and say, wow, go home and tell their wives when they got back home. Well, let me tell you what happened last night. It was the craziest thing. <laughs> Regular night, all of a sudden we see angels. They tell us God's born. And, you know, and by the way, bless the wives of these, you know, these shepherds anyway, because a lot of what they're saying doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I, oh yeah, uh, I was on the regular shift and then all of a sudden angels showed up and then they said that God is born. God's born. What are you talking about? God can't be born. And then I went and found him, and guess what? He was laying in a manger. Okay. <laughs> All right, honey, I love you. But, you know, that doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense that if God's coming to this world, he sure enough ain't coming and laying in a manger. <laughs> well, that's how Jesus is going to come the second time, right? Is that every eye is going to see him and every knee is going to bow. But the first time he came in humility as the Son of Man, Second time he's coming back in his the fullness of his brightness of his glory as fully the Son of God, right? But this this story probably didn't make a lot of sense to people. 
there's a lot of people that probably rolled their eyes at it. Oh, yeah, it's all angels. Yeah. Oh, did you see him at 3 o'clock in the morning? You know, uh, you just had, you know, you had something bad to eat for supper and you had a weird dream. I mean, and you're telling me that God manifesting in the flesh was laying in a manger. You need to come up with a better story than that. You know, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But you know what? They told everybody anyway. You know that? This is, this is a story that to natural men that didn't understand this, they would have looked at them and said, this doesn't make any sense. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Peter, there in Acts chapter 10, when the Lord's directing him to go to Cornelius, he, he's fasting. He's fasting. So he hasn't eaten in a while. And then all of a sudden he sees this vision that says, you need to go preach to the Gentiles. Well, he comes back down, and the people are saying, and he's saying, okay, well, we're, these Gentiles are knocking at the door. We need to go with them. I bet most of the people will be like, Peter, let's just get you something to eat, and let's revisit this, right? You know, we, we don't make rash decisions in the middle of the night. <laughs> you don't make rash decisions when you haven't had something to eat. No, no, let's get you something to eat, and let's not change, you know, a thousand years worth, of course, you know, Jesus had said you're going to go to all nations, but they didn't really understand it at that time, you know. But when, when Peter relayed that story to people, it, it probably didn't make sense to them. And there's a lot of people that here in this world, the gospel is just foolishness to them. It's just foolishness to them, right? It doesn't make any sense. But we should have such great joy for what the message of the gospel has done for us that it doesn't matter if people look at us weird, right? We should, we should be willing to be fools for Christ's sake. <clears throat> Back in the Old Testament when Joseph was elevated in Egypt and he brings his family into Egypt in the midst of famine, he tells them, when you come before Pharaoh... You tell him that you heard cattle. And the reason why, it says back in Genesis, is that in the eyes of the Egyptians, in the eyes of the Egyptians, that shepherds were an abomination to them. And Egypt is a, a strong type of sin and Satan in the world, right? Is, does the world think very highly of shepherds? Well, no. Egypt views shepherds as an abomination, right? The gospel is foolishness to those who are not born again, that don't have those spiritual eyes and those spiritual ears to understand. But because they were just so blessed and overwhelmed with this message, it didn't matter what other people said to them. It didn't matter if people thought that they were weird and they had this, this harebrained story. They didn't make it. You're telling me that God was laying in a, in a feed trough? What? doesn't make any sense but they told everybody anyway because they were just overcome with such great joy and that, that should be our disposition toward the gospel right and it's a shame to me that that joy and I have it I mean I have joy in the gospel and I hate to say that I put it under a bushel but it doesn't it doesn't overflow the way it should it doesn't doesn't ooze out the way it should because if we have such great joy in the gospel, it should be at the tip of our tongue all the time. Because what better news? And I've got, I've got a message that 
is to all people, right? I've got a message that I can deliver that the Spirit of God can direct and guide and burden people's heart, that there are many people that, are, that I would have never expected would have been blessed by this message. You know, it's not just for people that have been raised in the Permanent Baptist Church, right? It's for all children of God. It's for all people. And God has given us this, this you know, uh, one of the songs we sing, I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story of the people who, who know it, know it best, right? I, I love preaching to y'all on Sunday because y'all y'all know it. Uh, you, you know it best. You've heard it many times. But I love to tell the story. It did so much for me. And that is just the reason I tell it now. If you've had great joy in the gospel, how many people do you know that could stand a, a good, heavy dose of great joy, especially during this time of year, right? You have that. You've been entrusted with that. I've been entrusted with that in a special way as a, as a minister of the gospel. But you've been chosen as well to, because many children of God are not going to know the truth of salvation by grace alone here in this world. Many people, and even if they hear it by just some reason it doesn't always click with them. But you have not only been blessed to hear it, but the Lord has given you eyes to see and ears to hear where you do understand it. And we have such a great message, right? We have such a beautiful message of good tidings of great joy that is applicable to all kinds of people. I certainly hope that we can be good custodians of what the Lord has given us that we can preach that shepherd's gospel to all of God's children and that it can give them as much joy and peace as it's given us and as it gave those shepherds the first time that message was delivered on the night that Jesus was born. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.